this is In the Booth with Chuck. Welcome to today's episode of In the Booth with Chuck, and today I'm joined with um, my first guest, Gabe Ortiz. Hello, I didn't know I was the inaugural guest. I feel so honored. (laughs) This is um, episode one, so yep, kicking this off right. Fantastic. I, I, I can't say how excited I am, and, and I like that the stakes have been raised a little bit more, that I have to set the bar high for whoever follows me. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, no pressure, though. Um, so for some context here, I actually know Gabe from way back in my time um, attempting to run a soccer website, um, West of the Pond, um, and... Uh, we've just kind of stayed in touch from there but um Gabe what are you up to these days so nowadays uh my day job at least is I am a producer with Sirius XM FC the Sirius XM soccer channel um and due to COVID times I'm kind of all over the place when it comes to that channel there's not a show that I don't work on but my main show would be the afternoon drive show counterattack 4 to 7 p.m channel 157 if anybody wants to tune in um So pretty much five days a week, I'm working with other producers to help build soccer shows for Monday through Friday broadcasting, and it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like um, definitely a pretty cool gig. How did you, like, I guess, end up getting into the gig? And also for people who potentially want to do radio, since um, I'm sure that there's uh, plenty of people who are interested in figuring out how you got there. Um, is there any advice that you may have? Yeah, so I guess the first one, and maybe a bit cliche, but don't be afraid to tell people what you really want to do. Um, I got out of trade school for broadcasting because my real dream is I'd like to be an on-air talent someday, working radio, TV, wherever it may be. Um, and I just got out of trade school for broadcasting, and I was kind of floating around from a couple different places, um, not really doing something that I liked. And uh, they have those random like job search websites, you know, where they just shoot you with massive amounts of emails. We have an opening here, an opening here, an opening here. So one came from SiriusXM and I applied for it. And the original job that I actually went into interview for was to be a call screener for the uh, Rich Eisen show which is a big sports show they have on SiriusXM. And I was just going to sit there and just answer calls. And if any big news broke in the football world, I was going to get on the phone and let one of the producers know. And that was going to be my whole job. And in the middle of the interview, um, the, the, the interviewer asked me, hey, what's your favorite sport? And I said, well, I really like football, which is why I applied for this. But soccer is kind of my passion. I really, really, really love soccer. And he was like, really? And without even being prompted, I was just like, yeah, my favorite team in the whole world is Tottenham Hotspur. This is why I love them. This is how I fell in love with them. And he didn't ask me any of this. He was just like, what's your favorite sport? And I was like, my dream in high school was to work in in soccer media in America one day. I want to build the game here and I want to do everything I can to make soccer as popular as I can in the States. Um, And he was just kind of silent for a second. And I was like, oh, my God, I sounded so dumb. I just ruined this interview. I could have worked it serious. And I just sound like a fanboy now. And after about 10 seconds of silence, he just goes, you know what? They probably really like you at the soccer channel. And I was like, what? And he was like, they have a spot open for an associate producer. It's a little more complicated than what you were applying for, but I'll give them your contact and you can do an interview with them. And, you know, I did an interview with the soccer channel. And as they say, the rest is history. No, I mean, that's that's definitely awesome because especially in sports jobs with the hours and stuff that you're working, um, if it's not something that you're passionate about, it's just hard for it to end up being a good fit. So, like, once they see that spark for soccer, it's like, oh, well, let's um, let's see how things work over here. 
Yeah, and and this is by no means a slight to the channel. If anything, I think it's a testament. But Sirius XMFC is one of, if not the, I'm not sure about the, but definitely one of the smallest teams in all of Sirius XM, of all the hundreds of channels they have. The soccer channel is one of the smallest teams. And the work that those guys do over there is, I mean, it's remarkable with how little of hands they have on these projects and the level of content, the amount of content and the quality. I mean, it's it's remarkable. So I really couldn't ask to be part of a better team of people to learn as a young guy in the broadcasting field. For sure. And I think um, overall that checks out pretty well with um, just the soccer scene in America period because most of the staffs that the sports teams are running are smaller than um other teams as well of comparable sizes and markets um even for um like um nbc sports with the stuff that i'm doing writing about fantasy these days um we have a team of like four people half shared between um writing about fpl and betting and um like football and baseball have like almost four people per team yeah, no, it's it's ridiculous. During COVID, because people, you know, were getting sick and people couldn't travel and stuff like that, I had to work at NBA radio, fantasy sports radio, like a golf, a bunch of different channels. And it's like a whole other world when you go to a place like NBA versus soccer and they have like hundreds and hundreds of people on their team. And it's like we have like 10 and it's 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 remarkable. And what's even crazier is you go to these big staffs and the qual excuse me, and the quality of work is it's almost not as good as what 10 people over at FC are doing. So I, it's crazy. And that's why you have to be passionate about these things, especially um, these undersold sports like soccer in America, because even though it's growing, um, you know, you have to put in a lot of work to to get the quality there. Definitely. And I mean, and in those situations too, the statement like too many cooks in the kitchen does ring true because like if you have even just like a few really good people on your channel working in soccer, like those people can go a long way with um, impacting their vision and um, figuring out how they want things to run. Um, and it's a lot easier with getting everyone on the same page as well. A hundred percent. Yeah. And usually it's nice to throw out an idea and either just get a definitive yes or a definitive no. Sometimes my producers will be like, that's just a dumb idea, man. But it helps because then I can move on. And I know there aren't people who will just tell me what I want to hear all the time. So I, I appreciate that aspect of working in a smaller, more intimate team. Definitely. Cause I mean, yeah, even, um, just get the fact that you get feedback on your idea versus well i'll relay it up and then it either happens or it doesn't like if someone tells you that's a dumb idea they'll usually tell you and here's why so you don't do it again exactly exactly yep um but yeah so definitely um that's a solid bit on background but we're here to talk about the um transfer window which just closed on, on tuesday and boy did a lot happen <laughs> i mean so just up front do you think it's fair to say that this was the greatest transfer window of all time um i think it i, so, I think it has to be up there the i mean you're probably right the issue is working like have, having to be on the actual news desk writing about these transfers as they came in has me a little jaded about the transfer window. As fair, a yeah, very um, fair. Because just a very different um, scenario versus following it as a fan. Mm -hmm. But it is by far been the most active transfer window um, that I've seen because, I mean, teams basically took... Um, the fact that the Premier League has much more TV money than every other league and ran with it, buying up anyone that they could. Yeah, that's a pretty fair assessment of what happened. Um, and what's even crazier is you have these giants like Barcelona who were on the flip side and were forced to fire sale because they're so broke that they, they, they don't have any other option. They've mismanaged their books so bad that, that you have these massive, massive names, and I'm sure we'll get to it, like Lionel Messi, who are out the door when they didn't even want to leave in the first place. So it's just so much wackiness on so many different levels that went down throughout the summer. Yeah, I mean, we might, might as well um, start there just because it's a, a good lead-in. But yeah, what 
what was like your first um feeling with um Messi leaving Barca well my first big feeling because the news broke when I was supposed to take an hour and a half break at work and and sure enough my boss calls me and he's like hey you, you're not going to be able to go on break. We need to stay live. So get everything get, get everything ready in the next 10 minutes because we're going right now. So I had to work for an extra like three hours that day and I lost out on my lunch break because of Lionel Messi. So that was my first thought. But then once I got over that, um, I think it's a testament that these massive giants are not invincible and that you can have your eyes be bigger than your stomach when it comes to these transfer fees. I mean, look at how much money Barcelona spent on dud players. Usamane Dembele, Antoine Griezmann. Those two alone are enough to to financially set a fire up in, yeah. in your club. You know, I mean, has Barca even made a good signing in like the past three years? I I don't know. I mean... Emerson Royale was supposed to be a good signing who had a $300 million release clause and was, quote, supposed to be at Barcelona for years to come, and he's out the door how fast? I mean, they... I, you have to wonder what's going on in the club that these players who are so successful before they get to Barcelona totally have their careers derailed months into playing in, in the red and blue of, of, of Catalan. You know? I, I mean, I... I'm not in the club, and I'm not particularly a La Liga aficionado, so I'm sure there are people who have better insight on it than I do. But even with that being said, any plain fan can see that something rotten is going on at Barcelona, and people are not used to that. Most soccer fans, myself included, don't remember a time in Barcelona <laughs> weren't a top three team in the world. And now it's going on. They're in fire sale mode, getting rid of all their biggest stars because they can't balance their books. No, de definitely. It's it's super weird to see. And I mean, I do think that Barca's back to moving in the right direction because part of it is definitely that they got away from really their academy and especially with trying to just, well, we're going to buy a team. But that's never been the Barca way. The team has always been bigger than the player. And um, trying to move away from that just like doesn't work, especially when like, a team like that is ingrained in your blood like you can't just change what they stand for mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think um, yeah o overall it's going to be interesting to see where they where they move but you are right that it is good to see um, some of these giants fall unfortunately them falling also meant that PSG could buy up everyone in the world this is true yeah and I, I think, gun to my head, that's probably who I would say had the best transfer window this summer. I mean, the list of names that they brought in is unbelievable. And Mauricio Pochettino's first true transfer window, he gets Hakimi, he gets Lionel Messi, he gets Genie Wijnaldum, he gets Sergio Ramos. I mean, these are massive, massive names to all come into one team in one transfer window, it's unheard of. I mean, when Real Madrid had their year where they brought in Zidane and pretty much built a full, excuse me, a full Galactico squad in in a transfer window, I think that this PSG one rivals that. I mean, it's it's genuinely unbelievable what they accomplished this year. And is it is it possible to not have the best transfer window in the world um, when you got Messi and his Jersey sales have already basically paid for the transfer by itself. <laughs> Before the years even started, he just played in his first game. What last week? The league, yeah. the week going into this international break run. Yeah, he hasn't even started a game for them yet. And he's already a, a cash cow, the likes of which Paris has probably never seen before in sports. So I mean, like you said, it pays, and that's just messy. I'm sure Ramos had a ridiculous amount of jersey sales. I mean, Hakimi is is going to be a massive player for them too. It's it, it's good business mixed in with oil money, and when you combine those two things, you get ridiculous transfer windows like what we saw, uh, like what we saw this past summer. Yeah, the one the one thing um, staying with PSG that I I still don't understand 
um, why they didn't call Real's bluff with Mbappe. Um, because Real didn't have two, $200 million to, uh, to give up. Well, really, euros, because it was more than $200 million. It was like almost mm-hmm. $250. And... It, and we already knew that Real's going to come hard in January for trying to sign him to a long-term deal that he's probably going to sign. Um, so PSG literally could have wiped out everything that they've spent by just hitting except. <laughs> and, and like you said, I think it was a bit of posturing by Real Madrid, especially to be like, you know, our crosstown rivals, or I guess they're not crosstown, cross-country rivals in Barcelona are broke right now. That's not us. We can throw, you know, $200 million offers out there for the biggest players in the world. Like, it's nothing. I think it was a bit of posturing. Um, and to be honest, that's probably the one big transfer that didn't happen that I would have liked to see happen. Um, just because, a, I think it's good for the game when Real Madrid has Galacticos in the squad, and you know you don't get much bigger than Mbappe right now. Um, and on top of that, I mean, if we saw Messi, Ronaldo, and Mbappe all move in the same transfer window, I mean, the scenes would have just been unbelievable. And it felt like that was the last piece of the trifecta that seemed like it might get over the line that just barely didn't. No, definitely. It would it would have been like pretty exciting to see Champions League with um that actually happening. But I mean, oh, unbelievable! Even though the Champions League title has already been basically handed to PSG, there's still gonna be much more of um a fight because almost every top team that's not Barca got better. Yeah, for sure, and and. That's why I said you'd have to put a gun to my head to make me pick PSG um, as the best transfer window because I think of teams like Chelsea who are also right up there, and I think that's a totally acceptable answer for best transfer window. Um, I, I mean, the return of Lukaku is obviously the headline, but they actually walked out of this transfer window in the profit because they did so good moving players off who were either young players who they didn't see breaking into the first team or players who weren't adding a whole lot to the squad for good money, too. I mean, Kurt Zuma, the, the the deadline day move to West Ham, I mean, that was a good deal that they made that put them into the positive. So all the way up to the last day, they were making moves, not just to strengthen the squad, but also to fatten their po- their, their their pocketbook. And that's an important part of business that I think people forget in these transfer windows, is that if you don't want to end up like Barcelona, you have to make money just as much as you spend money. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually looking at, um, like, the top 25 spenders on transfer market right now, and only four ended up in the profit, um, and that's Chelsea, um, Red Bull Leipzig, Aston Villa, and Brighton. Wow, Brighton, that's actually an interesting one. I mean, them just being in the top 25 transfer spenders um, says plenty about um, the Premier League as a whole. But um, guess who was the uh, number one spender in the world? Who is that? Arsenal. Wow. They spent, what, $135 million? Is that right? I just pulled that number out. It could be wrong. Um. Well, depends. It, it depends on what your hundred thirty-five million is in, because it, I'm at least I'm looking in dollars right now, mm-hmm. and one hundred and eighty-two. One hundred eighty-two dollars. Okay, so that probably shakes out to about one hundred and thirty, one hundred forty pounds, because that's what I was thinking of. Um, I, and <laughs> currently, bottom of the table, zero goals, uh, zero points, twentieth place in the Premier League. I mean, you really can't write this stuff. It's it's actually unbelievable. Well, and I mean, also, you get to a point that um, every... And then, you all, I mean, you also get to a point that, like, almost every transfer that they did was redundant. Like, I can't think of one move that they made that truly makes this team better right now like is ben white a good signing yeah 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 is he that much better than just playing saliba instead of sending him on loan to france again 
again probably not um i mean similar with um them getting tamiyasu they have the exact same player on their team in column chambers already um mm-hmm. you don't need another inverted right back if you're going to sign a right back you need an actual right back um just just some very strange moves from them and didn't tamiyasu play uh oh god center back at bologna he i don't even think he played right back in italy did he um he played a little bit of right back but he's played a lot a lot more center back than right back because that is his natural position mm-hmm. and when you hear arsenal release these statements after they sign him it sounds like they want him to be a right back or play as the right in a in a back three yeah i mean yeah it looks yeah it looks like everything that arteta said that they're gonna be playing a back four that's gonna be a back three in attack with um Sako on the wing and Tierney basically being a left winger instead of a left back mm-hmm. which theoretically is fine but again what's Colin Chambers supposed to do because you still don't have um any European games to get these to get these guys um any minutes into the squad and, yeah and there and I mean there's a couple of rumors linking um like uh saw something with Cedric and then um something else with El Nenny um both going to Turkey but that still doesn't feel like enough to actually shave the squad oh uh, not even close and I mean god forbid they get knocked out of a cup competition early the way they're playing right now then that's even less time they have to play all of these players that they have stacked in the same positions and this is just going to be dead money on the books. I mean, if you end up playing Tamayasu instead of Callum Chambers, and like I said, especially if they get knocked out of a cup competition, Callum Chambers is just going to be stealing money from the club sitting on the bench if he even makes it into the squads, you know? So you find yourself in this position with Arsenal words. They have a lot of money being paid to players who might not be offering anything to the club. And it's the same thing we just talked about with Barcelona. Barcelona, obviously, on a much bigger scale, they're not dropping 120 for um, 120 million for Griezmann in North London, but it's the same problem, just in, at a different volume of money. And I think it's a big reason why they're doing so bad right now is because they have poor money management, just as bad as their player management is. Um, but one thing centering around money, and especially with um, the Premier League spending as Premier League teams took up six, actually seven, of the top ten spending spots in the world. Um, wow! Do, do does um the rest of the world actually wish the Super League did happen? Interesting. Hmm. The rest of the world, in terms of the clubs, not the fans, right? Uh, yeah. Um, I just, and maybe this gets away from the true point of the question, but I don't think there's a way that clubs could reconcile with their fan base in any country about doing a Super League. Um, and, but he, I, I mean, even still, we still see dominance in Europe from England. So I do see the point, and I, and I understand why maybe that would be the case, but I think it's it's become such a toxic buzzword now that, they can't close Pandora's box on it. They've opened it. I mean, it definitely is, but you can also you can also make the argument that we already have a Super League. The Super League is just England. It's just the Premier League. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't think you're wrong. Um, and the, I think the big issue, at least that I took with the Super League, is that these big teams can buy into it, even though and and, and be there permanently. If there was a fluid promotion relegation system like there is in every league, then I think it would have landed with a lot of people a lot better. But the fact that and this is coming as a Tottenham fan, Tottenham have no business being in a Super League with Real Madrid and and Juventus and Manchester United. Well, you know, what if we won in how many years other than a League Cup in 2008? And I think the fact that a team like Tottenham, who is not a world beater, would be guaranteed to be in the Super League every single season 
for no other reason other than we coughed up X amount of dollars that maybe other clubs can't is what really rub people the wrong way. I think if you implemented a fluid promotion relegation system, then maybe there's a little more room for something like that to happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is funny because even if you were going by the top six in spending, um, Tottenham wouldn't have been in that. Um, even this year, Tottenham still weren't in the top six in spending in the Premier League because they found an insane way to force every team to loan them the, their players and they can pay <laughs> for them next year. I yeah. don't I don't really understand um how transfers worked in general this year because I mean it feels like everything is spread out over either a five year payment plan, um, it's a loan to buy, like not much actual money um exchanged hands this this summer. And yet it ended up being the craziest transfer window with the biggest names moving around, which is remarkable. I mean, this was supposed to be the dead transfer window because everyone's in the COVID hangover, right? And that clearly didn't happen. Yeah, not, not at all. Um, teams teams that um, were at least running semi-balanced books in the pre past couple of years smelled blood in the water and struck. Yeah, and it paid off for a lot of teams in big, big ways. Uh, who do you, who do you think had the best transfer window? Uh, if if my pick is PSG, do you do you agree with PSG or do you go somewhere else with it? Well, I mean, it's it's definitely at least it's I feel like it's impossible not to say um, PSG looking at the entire world. So I do want to narrow things down a little bit to the Premier League. Okay, and uh, um, I think I I'm kind of torn because it's between. Chelsea because Chelsea took the largest step in be in like being a title contender in the league and Crystal Palace because they're a team that's just kind of been struggling around the bottom of the league for the past couple of years and then they released like I think it was like 11 free agents cleared their books over the summer and said Patrick Vieira here you go um make a new squad and he did he made a new squad yeah. <laughs> um it's it's actually it's pre pretty interesting looking at what they've done this season because i mean they're already much more exciting than a roy hodgson team even with um the same defensive tenacity just because they're actually attacking even though the players that you'd consider will be their um two best attacking players in um as analisi are both out injured yeah and and i think it's a testament to to Vieira's sway i think his name being attached to that club in such a big way was a really big reason of why they were able to do business i think he's a player that young guys want to go play for and i think that's an important thing to have when you're trying to build a team from a mid-table side into maybe a potential european contender and and you also have to remember too He's done this before because he turned Nice from a mid-table side into Europa League team. Um, things didn't go so well once they made it there, but you can also argue that he should have gotten more time in France with that team. Mm -hmm. So it's not it's not just like this is a completely unproven manager coming into Palace and just being like, well, I think we can do this. This is someone who's literally done just that yeah. and with backing from the board and um just the absolute quality of signings that they got in um i don't see why he can't do it i don't i don't understand what truly went wrong with the fact that um edward was supposed to be going to brighton and then next thing you knew not only was he going to palace but going to palace for less than the um like i think it was like 25 um, million pounds or so that he was originally quoted to Brighton for. So do you think that Chelsea took a bigger step in their pursuit of their pursuit of being the best team in the Premier League or do you think Crystal Palace took a bigger step in their pursuit of being European contenders? Um, I think I think Chelsea took the bigger step just because it's um, it's a much harder jump from fourth to first than it is from like 13th to 7th in the Premier League. Um, I mean, just kind of being a stable team 
will see you rise to about ninth um and then it's just player quality from there um <clears throat> chelsea literally has to have two top tier 11s to sustain a full challenge and um now with um the addition of lukaku and Saul, they have that um mm-hmm. and the thing that chelsea missed last year was a killer instinct they have that now um there's few more cold-blooded strikers than Lukaku in the world um I mean actually I think the top at least three three of the top four are all in the Premier League now um because the only guy missing is Lewandowski who was saying at the end of the transfer window that he wanted to leave and will probably end up at a Premier League club sooner rather than later yeah which I mean you can't can't blame him with um just being bored of all the winning that he's done (laughs) um but yeah with um like Lukaku Ronaldo and Harry Kane all in the Premier League that's just like uh disgusting riches of strikers yeah it's it's really unbelievable and I think that's to your point of the Premier League kind of already being the Super League, I think the players are starting to see that as well, that it's getting to the point where if you want to be competing with the very best players in the world, you do it in the Premier League. And I think that players like Messi and Ronaldo leaving leaving Spain make a lot of people realize, like, okay, like, the tides are turning a little bit. Let me start making my moves now. And I think that's what Robert Lewandowski was thinking a little bit too. He's like, let me see if I can make this move a little bit earlier than I originally planned so that it's one less year that I wear down my body playing in Germany and playing in the Champions League for Bayern Munich, that I can go and compete with the best while I still feel like I'm in my prime. And I think a lot of players are going to follow suit over the next couple of years and making moves to these big Premier League clubs, unless teams like Barcelona and Bayern Munich and Real Madrid can start throwing around serious cash again. For sure. And um, so with, with the current moves in the Premier League, um, what would your top four be um, right now? You want my biased top four or my unbiased top four? <laughs> um, I mean, go ahead with both because, I mean, we both know who's going to be fourth in your biased one. Yeah. So I think I think Man City win the league again. Um, I think that they find their way to first. I think Pep Guardiola knows just how to win that competition. He's got it down to a T. A lot of the players do. And is a little bit of a bold prediction, but I think Gabi Jesus proves himself to be a true number nine this year, especially with the support he's going to have in that midfield with the addition of Grealish. When De Bruyne gets back to full health, I think Gabi Jesus is going to be a force for them up front. Um, second place, I think, will be Chelsea and for obvious reasons that we've kind of already stated, the only thing they were missing last year was, you know, a cold-blooded guy. I think Thomas Tuchel is the real deal in every sense of the phrase. I mean, he's proven last year with his Champions League run, and I think he's proving this year with his movement in the transfer window and how they've started out the season that Chelsea are going to be here for the long run. Um, But I could be convinced that Chelsea could win the league. I don't think that it's super clear-cut for Man City, but if I have to pick one three match days in... I'd probably go with City just because we've seen them do it so many times. Um, Third place, I would give to Manchester United. And that's for a lot of reasons that we've said already as well. I mean, the the additions to the defense and Varane, you have the homecoming of Cristiano Ronaldo, Jan Sancho. I mean, the team's just loaded with talent. And the reason I don't think they're going to be able to keep up with Chelsea and with Man City in the long run is because I don't think that Solskjaer is as legitimate of a guy as Thomas Tuchel and um, and Pep Guardiola are. And I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. I really don't. I think that people give Ale Gunnar Solskjaer a lot of credit, which he does deserve. I mean, he steadied the ship in Manchester United. They're a top four club again, and, and they were struggling with that for a bit. But to put him in the same vein as what Thomas Tuchel has accomplished or what Um, Pep Guardiola has accomplished I think is kind of erroneous and I think that he will be the weak point of that team as they've now solidified the player base that they need to really make a run at big trophies and 
Fourth place is where it starts to get a little dodgy. I think there's a couple teams that could slip into there. Uh, biasly, I'd like to say Tottenham can find their way to fourth place. And I think they have the squad to do it. I think a couple injuries could really derail this team. But I think that if they have a full health starting 11 for the majority of the season, I think that they can make a really serious run at it. Um, I think Leicester's going to be in the mix again just because they're such a well-drilled team. I love Brendan Rodgers. Jamie Vardy shows no signs of slowing down. They ended up holding on to James Madison, too. I I mean, they're just really solid across the board, and they show that every single year. And I think most people's pick will probably be Liverpool for that fourth spot. Um, And here's my (laughs) one issue with Liverpool. Here's my one issue, is that Virgil van Dijk has been really, really good these first couple of games. But even though people don't want to say it, when you have an ACL injury, the way that, that Virgil van Dijk did, it takes you a little bit to trust that knee again. And I think we've seen a couple times his long balls have looked great. I think that's kind of been the, the, the star-studded part of his return to the Premier League is that he is pinging long balls down the field. But I think that sometimes when he has to make quick shifts and he has to stop on a dime, his start-stop isn't as quick as it used to be. And I think it's because he's not trusting his knee yet. And that's totally normal. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that that defense is going to take some time to to find their dominance that they had when they scored 97 points in the Premier League and when they won their first title in 30 years. Um, so I don't trust their defense just yet. I think they're going to be banging in goals with the best of them. I mean, Jota, Mohamed Salah, Roberto Firmino, you know, everybody knows that star started cast up front, and I don't think that's going to be their problem. I think that they need to sure up the defense. I think Trent Alexander-Arnold needs to get back to his top, top-level form, and I think the jury is still out on how Van Dyke is going to come back from that injury this season. But I understand why people would want to put them forth. I think it's a three-dog race between those three for the uh, fourth-place spot. So, um, I mean, what's funny is the fact that I, mean, I essentially have um, the same top four, but for different reasons. Um, Interesting. Because, so, first, with uh, with City and the Gabriel Jesus number nine, um, I think the best thing that they've done so far this season is not playing him at the nine. Um, because Ferran Torres has been the nine with um jesus playing off the wing and uh, i mean so far you can't can't complain with that i don't know if that's gonna hold up over the course of an entire season but it also doesn't matter because we haven't seen kevin de bruyne or phil foden yet this season um Mm -hmm. so it's like there's still another gear for city to hit that we haven't seen um, they're still trying to figure out exactly where they want to play Jack Grealish. Like, is he actually a left winger? Is he a central midfielder? I mean, does he really want to be a central midfielder? Because mm-hmm. most of the reason why they lost to Spurs was that um, Jack Grealish and Raheem Sterling got in each other's way, and Jaffa Tanganga was able to um, pick both of them off at the same time. Put both of them right in his pocket. One pocket for each of them. Um so, I mean, that's going to be something that they have to figure out, but there's just truly too much talent there for them not to figure it out. And with Pep Guardiola's game planning, you obviously assume that he will figure it out. Um, definitely Chelsea is second, but it's almost like a 1A and 1B situation where you saw Liverpool and City trading blows until the absolute final day. That feels like it's what it's going to be again this year. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what's actually really cool about the fact that, like, there's no room for error. Like, last year in matches um, with the top six playing each other, you saw, like, kind of everyone just playing not to lose, ended up in a bunch of nil-nil draws. Um, This year already when um, Liverpool and Chelsea played each other, both teams were playing to win. Even when Chelsea went down to 10, they were still playing to win that game. They weren't just holding on for dear life. Um, And that's, like, going to really make those must-watch games. Like, And I'm sure 
um all of the broadcasters are just like so happy because now they can properly hype these up and have the games live up to their expectations so they can talk about them after um i have i have united third um be both because of management and the fact that they still didn't address their most important need of getting a defensive midfielder in um the united attack is amazing the united back line at full strength assuming that there's no injuries to anyone is also extremely good um linking their actual midfield to that attack is just non-existent um and against teams that end up bunkering against them they're they still don't really have much to figure out those situations and unfortunately with um as good as sancho and ronaldo are they're not going to help with that um if um if ron could put in a couple more of those balls that he put um similar to what scored led to the winner for greenwood that may help in those situations but there's still a lot that united needs to show us over the course of a year to prove that they should truly be in that title title contenders race Mm -hmm. um full force and then liverpool is an extremely good team that just might lack a top gear um because with with their with their start starting eleven, one of the best of the world, um, they've gone about trying to improve their depth with like um because the addition of Kanate is gonna be a big addition for them. Um, having a healthy Joe Gomez back is gonna be big because I mean they can actually play him now either at center back or at right back for giving Trent Alexander Arnold some some rest. Even um having Tasmikas. Um, and now apparently using him as a late game weapon for set play delivery, um, all amazing things that Jurgen Klopp is going to use very well. But if if they get caught in a, in a true shootout, like I still just I still just need to see a game that says this is Liverpool because mm-hmm. I haven't seen that yet where they just put teams to the battering ram um they truly may do may do that over the course of the season um at which point we've really got a mess on our hands with um truly like all four teams really competing and that's why i mean you can't count any of the four out um but that just them being able to show that they have that top gear is going to be most important when it comes to figuring things out um and then I have I have Tottenham fifth. Um, helps that they already have a couple of points up on a lot of teams just because of the fact that starting the season perfect. And when you look at where their biggest weaknesses were with the fact that really they just needed a couple defenders and a proper game plan. Um, yeah. Because even if you look if you looked at all the numbers on paper, Tottenham should have made top four last year. Um, they had one of the best goal differentials in the league. It was just when they were giving up those goals and not just putting teams to the sword. Um, unfortunately, under Nuno, they're still not going to put teams to the sword because that's just not how he manages. But I don't think that they're going to be giving up nearly as many goals in crucial situations because they're mentally exhausted under him either. Like, I mean, he ends up coming in basically as a... Um, and just being the team dad like taking play players under his exactly, wing, yeah. um just doing doing a lot um for making sure that everyone is okay um unless you're truly not on board he's like the, serge arier he's he's the anti-mourinho when it comes to personality i what? mean when we when we picked him up as 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 a manager everyone was like oh same tactics as Mourinho, all this and that but in how he deals with the media and how he deals with players he couldn't be more opposite to what Mourinho does oh yeah i mean it's it's a it's re- it's really funny overall because <laughs> like um with with everything i mean dude was literally trained by Mourinho, uh um, yeah and they couldn't be more opposite personalities 
Um, but it's good because it's like a lot of the things that the team learned under Mourinho still apply playing for Nuno. It's just um, you have a lot more freedom under Nuno than you had under Mourinho. Mm-hmm. Um, for the Leicester situation, they're, I I don't think that they're going to be a true top four contender until Brendan Rodgers isn't the manager of that team. Interesting. Um, he just he just finds too many ways to get in his own way um, constantly because even all of their best performance has been with Kalecchi and Nacho on the field and he finds more and more ways every day to not play him. Yeah, and I I think that West Ham 4-1 drubbing that they gave them, even though Leicester had a red card in it, I mean... We we should probably and it hurts me as a Spurs fan. We should probably show some love to West Ham, and I think that they're going to be in the conversation for top four this year. I don't see them locking it down, and I think they're going to have a bit of a collapse as the season really starts to wear on. Um, but I mean, they're I, they're one they're one Mikel Antonio injury away from complete derailment. Exactly, um, and I mean that's. Unfortunately, always where West Ham has been, uh, they've hopefully replaced um, Jesse Lingard with um, Flashix, but I mm-hmm. can't, I can't get past um, his spell with Everton, um, where he was just an absolutely terrible player, it's a um, disaster. And also, I don't think that with how long it takes for people to contribute to a David Moyes team that he's going to be a factor early enough for it to matter. Mm-hmm. That that they may fall behind before he starts to kick on and really start to contribute the way that they need him to. Definitely. Um, and just, just, to, just to transition, since we actually ended up spending a good bit of time on the window as a whole... Um, have to give you a little bit of a soapbox for how you felt specifically about the moves that um, Spurs made or didn't make. (laughs) First off, I'm not important enough to get a soapbox. I stand on shoeboxes. I I haven't earned a soapbox yet, but I do appreciate (laughs) the the gesture there. Um, So I think, look, outside of Christian Romero, every player that Spurs signed this window were between the ages of 18 and 22, right? So it's very clear that Paratici came in to this Tottenham project as director of football, planning for the future. I think that he wants to assemble a core group of players who, like I said, are between 18 and 24, who are all gonna develop together and are all gonna hit their primes in like three or four years right at the same time. And I think that's what he's really prioritizing and that's when he wants to start challenging. I mean, Pepe Sar, 18 years old. Brian Heal, 20 years old. Emerson Royale, 22 years old. I mean, all these players are going to hit that 25 to 27 age range, you know, all at the same time. I mean, now players are peaking way earlier than they ever have, so you can probably say 24 to 27. Um, And I think that they're building for the future, and that's what I expected. I'm a pretty firm believer whenever you bring in new leadership to a team in any sport, but especially in soccer— it takes at least one full season to really implement the philosophy of the new leadership. And so whenever Spurs get a new manager, I always kind of give one season as a wash and let's just get the, let's let's set the ship right. You know, let's make sure that we're on the right course. Let's make sure that everybody is on board with the message and anybody who's not isn't in the club anymore. And that takes at least one full season. So I didn't expect anything massive. I think the Romero signing is awesome. I think that was our biggest need was a good central defender. And ironically enough, in the first three games, we haven't even needed him because Eric Dyer, Davis, and Sanchez have proven to be really, really good so far. I don't think it'll hold on for a whole season. It never does, but... One really good season, or one really good start to the season so far for our two center backs. So our one, you know, 
immediate impact player hasn't even needed to make an impact yet. But I think it's clear they're building for the future. I think that we replaced a lot of dead wood with really promising young talent, which should be the goal in a transfer window, is to get older aging players out. Toby Aldevaro gone playing in Qatar. Eric Lamella, 29 years old, gone playing in Spain. You replace both those players with Christian Romero and Brian Heal, who are obviously exciting in their performances speak for themselves. Um, but I think it was a transfer window for the future, and I'm okay with that. I don't have any gripes about that. Um, and I'm really excited by a lot of the young talent we brought in. There's nobody who we brought in where I was like, mm, that was a mistake. I think everybody has a role, and I'm excited to see them play it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, because like, basically during the transfer window, okay. you're doing two things. You're either um, creating a window to win now or trying to figure out when your window is to win later because coming into this year Spurs had neither um, the first team squad wasn't strong enough to win now and there really weren't any prospects outside of Skip Sesson Young and Dane Scarlett that you were truly excited about for the future so um, you can really just look at why Harry Kane would have wanted to leave um, because what what was there to get excited about with this squad? Um, but with every move that has been made, it fills not only a very clear need now, but a very clear need in the future. Um, and Sar specifically, um, he like obviously who knows if he'll actually live up to the potential. But this is a dude who. Is, uh, is um, supposedly the next best French midfield talent after Kamavinga. Um, that's some insane praise that even Spurs were able to complete that transfer. And it might end up costing a little more than we expect, but if um, Nuno's able to turn this guy into anything, um, it'll be quite the win next year when we actually get him from Mets. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's interesting to just have an actual reason to watch um, more than like two French French league games a year. Um, yeah, true. Because basically, I only paid attention to the big ones. Whereas now, I'll at least be tuning into Mets games when I can. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of a better coaching staff I'd want to bring along these young players than Nuno. I mean, I've always said that to be a good Tottenham manager, you need to be able to do two things. You need to be able to operate a transfer window efficiently on a very tight budget, and you need to be able to develop young players either through cheap transfers or through the academy. Mauricio Pochettino was really good at both of those things, and that's what took Tottenham from being perennial Europa League contenders to a Champions League final. And Jose Mourinho is not very good at working on a budget, and he's not very good at developing young struggling players who have a lot of potential and we saw that play out with Tottenham um, um go ahead yeah so that th th that's actually one thing where it's pretty tough because so unfortunately one thing that both the end of Pochettino and the beginning of Mourinho had not working in their favor is that they were working with Daniel Levy True. um because basically there wasn't Spurs didn't have a goodbye since Sun when Paul Mitchell left as being Pochettino's actual transfer guy over him not getting funds from Daniel Levy. Um, Nuno's already ahead of both Mourinho and the end of Pochettino because of him having just a clear understanding of working together with um, Paratici. Um, because, I mean, he also wanted to hire him at Juventus and... Um, essentially their target lists are clearly players that they've worked on together like you're not getting any situations where Nuno is being forced to work with anyone that he doesn't want to work with and mm -hmm. that's more than any manager can ever ask for a hundred percent and and I think what Nuno was able to accomplish at Wolves is a good precedent for what he can do at Spurs. And a lot of people knock his last year at Wolves, but you have to remember, his team got gutted in the transfer window, and then they lost their number one scorer to a horrible skull injury. Um, and as a side note, it's great to see Raul Jimenez playing again, and playing well. I mean, he, he looks dangerous every time he gets on the ball. Um, but 
I think that last season is a little unfair to hold that totally against Nuno because he was working with a broken down squad. It was a COVID year, which applies to everybody. And I think he was forced to play more defensively than he would like last season because he just didn't have a lot of attacking options going forward. So he's like, all right, if we can smash and grab these games and take three points home, that's a big victory. Um, and I think that Nuno shows a lot of the qualities that Mauricio Pochettino shows. And like I said earlier, uh, um, getting young, potentially struggling talent to play to their top potential and being able to operate a transfer window on a budget. He's very good at both of those things. He showed that at Wolves, and I think he's going to show that at Tottenham, at least through three games he has. So I, I hope that that continues moving forward, and I think that this transfer window for Tottenham was was everything a fan's expectation should have been. I don't think we were going to become the Galacticos this transfer window. I think the Romero signing alone is great. The only thing I'll say this, I will say this, is we are now going into another season without a backup striker. And I don't, why is that the Tottenham party trick? Every single year, it's like, look at what we can do, guys. We can we can not sign a striker for Kane. Like, he's not going to get injured again. He's one bad tackle from having two bum ankles at this point. And, and at that point, God forbid, Sun go down. So the fact that we haven't brought in a backup striker for Kane again is beyond me. And Mario Mandzukic is out there right now as a free agent. And Spurs should be gunning for his contract as soon as possible. The The year they made it to the Champions League, half the reason they made it was because they could throw, you know, goofy Ferrando, goofy Ferrando Llorente out there. And and he would come in in the 75th minute and then score a goal, you know, score against Man City to send us to the semifinals, get the assist for, for or get the pass that led to the assist for uh, Lucas Moura to beat Ajax. Like, it, it's so simple how well things can work out when you do what you're supposed to do. And maybe that's a little forward, but it's like, yeah, you have a star striker who's injury prone. Get a backup for him. So if we go into another season again without a backup striker, that will be a failure on uh, Paratigi's part. But other than that, I was very happy with the transfer window, and it met my expectations, which is all I can really ask for. Okay, I mean, hopefully um, they'll just uh, develop Dane Scarlett into the backup striker. That would be nice as well. That would be nice, but he's very young. Very, very young. And I don't want to put that kind of pressure on the young man. I mean, he's already past Troy Parrott, so that's saying something. I wanted Parrott to be so good, man. I I love the kid's attitude and his spunk. I wanted him to be so good, and it just hasn't worked out. I mean, I think his, I think his move to MK Dons will be a good one for him because, I mean, they've already shown that they can produce top-quality players. And he just definitely needed a different environment where there's less pressure on him because you you already see what he does for Ireland. Um, like, dude's already a full international and can't figure out, a, like, heads from tails for Spurs. Like, it it's just something with um, the way that his, his development has gone so far with either the too much pressure and just needing to get away from the spotlight. Um so some, th- this time away, I think, will be good for him. Yeah, agreed. And I, I'm just I'm hoping that he doesn't become one of those Spurs Academy kids who's super hyped up, like uh, Alex Pritchard. If you remember him, I know that's kind of a deep <laughs> cut, but everyone was like, he's going to run the midfield in two years. He's going to be, you know, the, the most creative player in every game he plays in. And then it just never came to fruition. I really don't want Troy Parrott to be that because, like you said, the flashes we've seen on the uh, – national team for Ireland gets you really, really excited, and you just hope you can make it work at a club level. For sure. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go too far down that um, Pritchard rabbit hole because that will yeah. just have us here for another hour. <laughs> um, but uh, do you you have anything else that you'd like to touch on? Um, I mean, I think we, we hit the transfer windows as, as hard as we could. I mean, Ronaldo, Messi, Griezmann, uh, the names Sergio Ramos, the names that moved around this year were were unbelievable. Um, I think the Premier League is going to be so fun to watch this season. Fans back in the stadium feel so great, and I think that that it's going to be a dogfight to the very end. I don't see anybody running away with the title. I think that 
championship spot's going to be a dogfight. I think that the top four race is going to be a dogfight. I think the relegation battle is going to be a dogfight. Brentford looked good all of a sudden. And it's like, you know, they're playing with nothing to lose. They're playing with absolutely nothing to lose, and it's paying off for them. Southampton might go down. Newcastle might go down. I mean, this Premier League season is going to be one for the books. And personally, I can't wait. Yep. Well, um, thanks for joining me on the inaugural episode of um, In the Booth with Chuck. Thank you so much. I Hey, I hope I set the bar high. That's all I can hope. I hope I set the bar high. And um, also, since uh, we didn't plug this at the beginning, we'll plug it at the end. Um, you can find Gabe on Twitter at G Ortiz underscore. Yeah, um, G-O-R-T-I-S underscore. And then you can find me on Twitter at Chuck Booth Sport. That is sport, not sports. And uh, there are some feed issues with the podcast currently, but... Um, sooner rather than later you'll be able to find it anywhere that you can find your podcast but it is definitely available at least on um soundcloud and spotify at the moment